0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 2. We are uh, ready, almost ready, almost ready to uh, move on to verses 12 and following to the third portion of this chapter, but we uh, still have uh, a couple of final details to tie together uh, 3 through 11. So I'm going to do that this morning and if we can get it all wrapped up this morning then Wednesday night we'll begin our next uh, our next session uh, section of the chapter. I'm eager to get to uh, uh, 12 and following because we have the work out your salvation with fear and trembling that uh, is powerful. Uh, it's abused in some places so we want to make sure we're solid on it. Also it's God who's at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's a powerful verse and it's going to go well for us uh, to connect this as well with our Hebrew study because we have to learn how to rest. And uh, we have to learn how to rest in Hebrews and we have to learn who's really doing the work. And it's the Father who's doing the work in Philippians. So what a blessing for us that we get this tandem of Philippians and Hebrews uh, the way that uh, you know, almost act, you know, like I'd planned it like that or something. The Holy Spirit planned it in, uh, in that basis. So yeah, we get to look at uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling in verse 12. We get to look at God who's at work uh, in you, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. And then we get do all things without grumbling or disputing. And uh, that's one of the most convicting verses in the entire Bible that I just feel like, you know, I've been a pastor for, for all these years and how do I preach that? I'm the biggest grumbler in the church, the biggest, you know, this is, this is a, a, an issue so for all of us, and we've got to be humble by the Word of God. So we'll, uh, we'll deal with all those things. But for this morning, though, like I say, we're wrapping up the last deals here. Um, God highly exalted Jesus. He highly exalted Jesus, and that's what we're dealing with. So verses 9, 10, and 11. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask, call upon our Father to manifest His faithfulness once again to teach us uh, through His Holy Spirit the truth of His Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and we call upon Your faithfulness this morning. Father, uh, asking for You to be powerful, asking for You to provide. Father, to be at work. I don't know if uh, it's a migraine coming on or what it is, but Father, uh, keep my mind clear, give uh, my memory the capacity to teach your truth, and uh, Father, provide for the hearers as well, to sit with an undivided, uh, undistracted concentration, and Father, uh, open the eyes of our understanding, bless us and bless us abundantly. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, Uh, so at the point where we are, we are looking at point E and point F, and uh, I think, um, as we've been outlining this with the kenosis hymn, you understand that? That's uh, main point six in this outline, the kenosis hymn. That's the, the text that we're looking at here that deals with Jesus Christ who emptied himself and he humbled himself. He did those two things. He emptied himself when, he, when the word became flesh, when he was incarnate, when he walked this earth, but then he humbled himself when he went to the cross, and that's the issue. That he humbled himself uh, became, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we have those two activities that our Savior did. We then follow that up with two activities that our Father did. Alright? And the same, all within the parameters of this same hymn, this same song, we have two things the Father did. And so in verse nine, we have, for this reason also, God highly exalted him. That's the first thing the Father did. And then secondly, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And so this then takes us into things that Jesus has now received positionally seated at the right hand of the Father, but he's not yet received them experientially. We don't yet see all things subjected to Christ. We still live in an age of angelic conflict. We still have the enemies that are yet to be uh, under his feet. And so, uh, two things Jesus did, two things the Son did. We have subpoints under point uh, six here, including uh, subpoint E, where Jesus Christ humbled Himself, and we went through the uh, the issues there. And then subpoint F. Now we're starting to look at what the Father has done. So under F, the Father exalted Jesus, and under G, um, we talk about. Uh, the ultimate glory. And that's what we're looking at here. So, God the Father exalted Jesus Christ and grace bestowed upon Him the name which is above every name. When He bestowed that name, the verb for bestowing that name is charizomai, all right? It's charizomai. It's charis-omai, charizomai. So when you think charis for grace, when you think charizomai for grace-giving, Sometimes uh, charizomai is translated with forgiveness. Sometimes charizomai is translated with uh, bestowing. There's different ways uh, to grant to grant freely, to freely give. There's different ways that charizomai can be rendered. Sometimes maybe it's just a, a good concept for us to think, uh, to use the phrase, uh, he graced him out, <laughs> okay? You ever been graced out? That was the verb charizomai. And if you ever grace somebody out, that's called charizomai. Okay, and it might might have a forgiveness aspect, or it might just have a a free blessing uh, aspect, where just out of nowhere you want to be a grace blessing and and you surprise somebody with something. Anyway, we would use charizomai in those uh, in those ways, and and that's key. All right, and it's difficult. I'll admit that uh, when we, uh, to, to separate out what we've earned and deserved, to separate out what Jesus has earned and deserved, right? Are you having trouble with that? You realize that it's for this reason, it's causative, but it's not merit. Recognize that. It is causative, but it's not merit. And sometimes folks stumble with that, okay? And I think sometimes they stumble too with other aspects, with our own salvation, how we respond by faith. Faith is causative, but it's not merit. It's non-meritorious in the sense that when we believe, God the Father then bestows upon us eternal life, that he justifies us. Um, there's other illustrations as well. You and I are called to, uh, to agape, to with agape love, you and I are called to love God, right? And you think, well, That's a no-brainer. Of course we love God. We love because he first loved us. And then who wouldn't love our Savior? Who wouldn't love Jesus? Do you know what Jesus did for me? Okay. And so we teach this thing about loving God, but then we stop and we say, no, wait a minute. Agape love is love that doesn't look at the merit of the object. Okay, so quit looking at the merit of the object. Of course it's easy to love Jesus. Of course it's easy to love God. But don't love him for who he is. Don't love him for anything intrinsic to the object. Love him with agape love. That gets harder. You go, oh, wait a minute. I have to love from my own integrity, from my own character, from my own perspective, totally separated from what he has earned and deserved. Okay? So that becomes an exercise too in terms of agape love. Well, here's an exercise in terms of grace. And let me tell you, if you if you struggle with this, pray hard that God will get you through it because um, I think the consequences are severe. If we allow even the smallest a bit of what we've earned and deserved to creep into our uh, perspective on grace, then we've destroyed grace, right? It cannot be a grace thing if somebody's earned it or deserved it. And that becomes clear to him who does not work. So I think uh, before I move off of this point and we wrap up, like I said, I want to wrap up what we're doing here this morning. But um, in, in Romans chapter 4, just, just turn there, look at it, put your finger on it, and realize, Romans four four realize that this is a, a principle that applies in, 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 in broad applications, all right, throughout uh, any spectrum when it comes to grace, when it comes to work, when it comes to merit. So, Romans 4.4, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. Okay, so this is the, this is the principle. To him who works, that is, if you are engaged in an activity on a works basis, if you are engaged in an activity based upon merit, based upon earning and deserving, in a, in a contract, in, a, in an agreement, like those laborers that told uh, the, the master that they would work for all day for a denarius, he didn't cheat them at the end of the day when he paid them a denarius because they approached that on a works basis. They, pulled, they put in their eight hours and they got paid what they agreed to. That's works. That is that there is an agreement, there is a contract, there is a a matter of earning and deserving. And when you hold up your end of that covenant, when you hold up your end of that obligation, you then have a just claim over the other party to that agreement. It's a just claim. You have every right to expect and demand that he will pay you what's coming to you, that you've earned it, you deserve it. And if he doesn't, then you, you have recourse. You, you hold him because it's a just claim. See? None of that is grace. None of that is grace. Those other laborers that came later in the day, especially the crowd that came with just one hour left to go, you know, that four o'clock crowd that just worked an hour, they approached on a, on a, not on a works basis, on a grace basis. Because they said, whatever is right. All right? And so they were working on a grace basis, not a works basis. They had no just claim. They were left in the hands of the, of, the, of the Lord, of the Lord, the property owner there. And that's how we serve. That's how Jesus serves. When you operate on a grace basis, you don't have a claim over God. You operate on a grace basis and then when He chooses to reward you with the judgment seat of Christ, it's all grace then too. You have no claim over Him. Not now, not then. See. It goes on. So, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. And so we see that it's a faith mechanism. You've got to be walking by faith. His faith is credited as righteousness. All right? And so this is why we have it. And it has to be by faith. If it's not by faith, then it can't be through grace. And so we have have the... uh, the principle here. So now Jesus, he went to the cross. And yes, we have for this reason. It is causative. We It is for this reason. But is the name that was bestowed upon him and all the things the father bestowed on him, were these things that he earned and deserved? Is he giving these things on the basis of what he's earned and deserved? No. We're told that the father charizomied him Graced him out, bestowed this name on a grace basis. See, and so uh, this is that, and, and and the reason why I'm stressing it, I want us to be able to, I, I want us to remove it every time it creeps in, when it creeps into our, our carnal thinking, that well, God owes me now. I've done something for Him. I've been a good pastor or whatever. I've been a good husband. I've been a good, you know, whatever. And now that I've done this, He owes me. No, He doesn't owe me any. God owes me nothing whatsoever. I deserve the lake of fire, okay? And so I, I never want to have the mental attitude that, I've, uh, that it, something would be reckoned to me or credited to me as what is due because I have not earned or deserved anything. And even, if I've, even the fruit that I have laid up, the treasure that I've laid up in heaven, the fruit that I've borne, did I bear it? Or was it by the grace of God and God working in and through me, okay? Was it by the grace of God that I am what I am and by the grace of God I do what I do? So, we'll have more to say on that when we get to that. <clears throat> we had some subpoints here for this reason also. It is causative. The, the work that he did on the cross is the causative basis for the exaltation. The pinnacle of humility produces the pinnacle of, uh, of exaltation. Also, there's a corollary to that. Satan is the pinnacle of pride and arrogance and self-promotion. Remember, when you exalt yourself, God will bring you down. The name above every name encompasses the angelic and human realms and spans the ages to come on into eternity. Let's recognize that as well because Ephesians 1.21 talks about the uh, being above not only in this age but also in the age to come. And so uh, Ephesians 1 talks about Uh, which the father brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, that is, the father raised the son from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In the one to come. There will be names named in in the age to come but those names to be named are going to be under the name of Jesus Christ. And so uh, more studies that, that go into that. Hebrews 1 4. We saw this in our Hebrew series. In these last days is spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the ages. Notice in verse 3, when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Well, what's up with those angelic names that are going to be named not only in this age, but also in the age to come? And yet, it's, uh, we don't see it yet. Remember Hebrews 2, eight. In subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So there's a positional truth reality with this. We're waiting for the experiential truth of this to, to, to come forth. I believe that's in the new heavens and new earth on the fullness of time. All right, which gets us now to the last of what we're dealing with. Point G, Jesus Christ's ultimate destiny is the maximum glorification God the Father can actualize. The maximum glorification, God the Father is able to actualize. And we discuss what the Father is able to do. Is uh, able to do everything. Everything that's consistent with His nature. Everything that's consistent with His word. There's things He's not able to do. He, do, he cannot lie. Uh, there's other things He cannot do. He cannot abide iniquity in the solemn assembly Other things that God cannot do. He cannot deny himself. All right. And so uh, when we consider the ultimate glory for Jesus Christ, this uh, this is what we deal with here. Verses 10 and 11. Why did he exalt him? Why did he exalt him? Well, we have a so that. We have a purpose clause here in verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, that is when that name is named, the naming of a name, that's kind of fun when we talk about that. When is it invoked? When is it called? When is it um, uh, displayed on this basis? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is uh, the fundamental definition of everything uh, as it applies to uh, Philippians, right when we talk about everything that exists, we, we span dimensions we have uh, as if uh, this universe wasn 't big enough this physical universe there 's dimensions beyond this physical universe there 's of course the heavenly dimension, and then there 's the uh, dimension of the uh, of the of the unbeliever the the fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels, and uh, the different compartments there so there 's in heaven on the earth. And under the earth, and you can think of it as a threefold division. Typically, heaven is is rendered as being up, as being higher than the earth, and hell is usually envisioned as being down. Okay, and those are just terms of convenience that help us. Uh, it's like using terms like before and after when you span eternity, you're outside of time. So terms like before and after are somewhat uh, interesting. Uh, likewise, with these dimensions, up and down are somewhat interesting when it comes to uh, multidimensional space as far as that goes. All right. In any event, we're looking at it here. So these are the ones that confess. These are the ones that confess. And that includes, of course, us. We gladly confess. I'm going to be thrilled to confess. You know, whenever that that day comes and they announce the name of Jesus Christ, I'm going to be confessing as loud as, as I can with resurrected vocal cords and resurrected lung capacity and I'll be shouting that name, right. Uh, the, and I expect you will also, and the elect angels and and so forth. The body of the redeemed will do so gladly. What about the body of the unredeemed? What about the unbeliever? What about the, Satan? What about the fallen angels? Okay? Because it says every. It includes the dimension of under the earth, where no, no believer goes. Right? Except Jesus. He went and uh, proclaimed uh, what he proclaimed there in the lowermost parts of the earth. You and I don't go there. Most of the, the inhabitants there, they're going to be resurrected to stand at the great white throne judgment and uh, they too will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They too will bend the knee. And it's kind of curious, Pastor Cliff and I were talking about this, The um, how is this going to happen? Are they going to be forced? Will, will the hand of God push them down to their knee um, as it will? Or I think um, I don't like that model simply because the father has never coerced volition. Yeah, why would he start you know at the great white throne? Could it be that even Satan, even all the fallen angels, even human beings and unbelievers, easy for human beings, but even Satan and all the fallen angels, could it be that when they are standing there for their final condemnation, when they bend the knee? And when they're brought before that great white throne, can it be that God has the capacity to magnify His own righteousness with such a glory, with such an awe, with such a divine majesty that it it creates a condition that is so overwhelming, overpowering, just such as then even Satan will bend the knee. That the overwhelming awe and majesty will be those conditions in which Satan's volition will drop to a knee and confess the undeniable. How can you not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when you are standing in front of that unbelievable glory? I I believe God is capable of shining a glory so powerful, so overwhelming, that even Satan will volitionally confess the obvious. Jesus Christ is Lord. Drop to a knee and then be thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? And that keeps even satanic volition free in the sense that it's expressed from its own motivation rather than forced or rather than compelled. Anyway, we discussed stuff like that. Alright, that's why conferences are so fun. You get reunion with pastors you haven't seen in a while and different things you get to chew on together. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so here's the Father who's been spending thousands and thousands of years designing a plan whereby Jesus Christ receives the maximum glory, but then what happens after that? It's beyond the Son to the Father. And so there's some thoughts here as well. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, as prophesied by Isaiah and manifest by Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as prophesied by Isaiah and manifest by Jesus Christ. And so we're going to start, spend some time this morning in Isaiah 45, then of course we go to John 14:6, Philippians 2:11. a is what we're looking at here. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this has been promised way back, 700 years before Christ, Isaiah spoke of this in Isaiah 45. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Here we go. Remember when we taught Isaiah in 66 chapters and 66 Sundays? Remember chapter 45? All right. And... uh, I say 21B through 25, and it's curious to me. um, We could include all of 21, and we could even back up to 18, uh, because we have a taunt. We have a challenge here where Yahweh is throwing it out there to every fallen angel under the sun, (laughs) saying, um, try to be me. You can't do it, because I'm the only me, is what God is saying here. So... um, he is the Lord. So I guess I'll back up to verse 18. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. And this is our uh, passage that we turn to when we're uh, finding uh, questions in Genesis. Genesis. About the Tohu Wabohu and why was it formless and void and what happened in between Genesis 1 1 and Genesis 1 2. We have little clues that aren't given in Genesis, but we have answers outside of Genesis for questions in Genesis. And so, uh, is, we see it here. I am the Lord, there is none else. And so he, uh, describes it this way I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. So for the Jewish people, they don't have to go on a pilgrimage or trek to some mountain peak or some, you know, Shangri-La. They don't have to go to some Muslim place or Buddhist place or some monastery or some oracle at Delphi. They don't have to climb up some cliff. All right? He said, I made a home with you. (laughs) I put my temple in your capital city. I do not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. You know, Not a very impressive God since you're toting him around all the time. And in fact, if you don't move him from place to place, that God's going to pretty much sit there, I mean, you know, where you left him. Then he says, declare and set forth your case. It's a challenge, it's a taunt to those idols, to those fallen angels posing as gods. Indeed, let them consult together. I'll let you make this a group project, right? Right? When the teacher feels sorry for you and makes it open book, and when the teacher really feels sorry for you and lets it be kind of a group collaborative thing, here's God taunting these fallen angels. And even if they compare their notes and come together, they can't do it. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior There is none except Me. Now notice, this is the source of righteousness, the source of strength, the source of justification, the source of glory. They all belong to Him. But He is then, through the Son, going to make them available for us. Something that no idol can do. Turn to Me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Turn to Me. In other words, You've got to turn away from those idols. You've got to turn to me. That's the only provision. And be saved. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The wor- so what else can he swear by? Right? I mean, when you're God, you can put your hand on a Bible and say, so help me God. Okay, what do you say? He is God. And he can't lie. But he does take an oath. And he does swear by his own name. By his own self. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. Now, if we were Old Testament believers and didn't know anything about the New Testament, didn't know anything about Jesus, didn't know anything about, um, you know, just we know who the word is. Okay? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a marvelous... uh, expression here between the father and the son we don't get a lot of that in the old testament because uh, the church is a mystery and there's much that's not revealed until the word becomes flesh. If, if we're just reading this on an old testament basis then we would just think it's his spoken word it's his prophetic utterance it's his, his oath his covenant his promise it's this uh, oath that he's taking here swearing by his own name but so he swears by his own name his word has gone forth that's his verbal statement here in isaiah but it's also His begotten Son in the Gospels. Does that make sense? All right. So the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. And so are these knees going to bow to Jesus Christ or are these knees going to bow to the Father? Who is saying to me? Is it Jesus or is it the Father? Well, it's both, fundamentally. Because I and the Father are one. Because when Yahweh speaks, oftentimes it's, it's a blend, it's a combination. It's both the Father and the Son. If it's the Father speaking and the Son who goes forth and does it, they're both doing it. So Jesus Christ goes forth, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ, every tongue will swear allegiance to Jesus Christ, but guess what? It's ultimately to the glory of the Father, right? And so we, uh, we get to see how both get fulfilled where in the case of Jesus Christ is fulfilled in the, in the thousand generations, in the new heavens and the new earth. And then what does Jesus do? He delivers the kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. So, it's a fun uh, thing to consider here. Uh, where am I? I stopped at verse 23. So, uh, to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. If that's, This is that confession, the confession of godliness, the confession that it's only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame in the Lord. All the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. All Israel will be saved. All right? Not today. Not now. But there is coming a day. So there is no other provision for God to graciously bestow His righteousness, His strength, His justification, and His glory and uh, it's a, it's a it's a beautiful thing what a what a treasure and then jesus comes along and he is the expression of this he is the word made flesh he is the word that's gone forth that will not return void it will accomplish what the father designed it for he is the word that's gone forth and so we have uh applications here i think john 14:6 This is the verse that gave me two names for my daughters, <coughs> Alethea for truth and Zoe for life. God didn't give us a third daughter, which is a good thing, because Hados. Hados is the Greek noun for way, and that just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for Sharon either, we, we, Hados doesn't seem like a feminine girl's name, and we can just envision all kinds of horrible, vulgar things that might get te- be teased with, with with Hadas, and we just know. So we didn't get a third daughter, we didn't have to worry about Hadas, but the Hadas, Alethia, and Zoe, the way the truth and the life, this is the, the, the message here that our Savior has, that not only is it, obviously, when you believe in Jesus, you receive eternal life, but what else do you get? What's the whole point in being saved? We come to the Father. And the 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 true uh, or one of the many things that, that go with salvation is reconciliation. We have a restored relationship with the Father, and we're going to have an eternal relationship with the Father. And so, bringing us to the Father, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is uh, when you back up to verse one. Do not let your heart be troubled, or stop letting your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And so, this there's a, a tandem here between the Father and the Son. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Where where is he preparing? In his Father's house. Where are we going to be taken to? His Father's house. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what's he been doing these last 2,000 years? You know? Think about how awesome it's got to be. Because I see what he did in six days, which is pretty awesome. You know, what, what, what kind of a place is he preparing now for 2,000 years? How glorious is that? And when I uh, come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so, of course, he descends to the clouds, he gathers us to himself, he takes us back to heaven. This is uh, a preeminent rapture text right here. It's a marvelous thing to consider. And I, and you know The way where I am going. You know the Hadas. You know the way where I am going. Which is uh, death and resurrection. It's uh, laying down his life and taking it up and being called up. And uh, there it is. So Thomas said to him Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? So Jesus said I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so we come to the Father many different ways. We come initially at the point of our salvation, when we get saved, we come repeatedly, day by day, moment by moment. We go to the Father in prayer. Uh, The only way we go to the Father in prayer is in Christ, through Christ. And then ultimately we're going to go to the Father when uh, we depart this physical existence, when either rapture or physical death. We're going to stand before the Father in Christ. And uh, apart from Christ there is no other way. That is the exclusive message of the text. That uh, the Bible is uh, that this whole pluralism that our culture is wrapped up in is anathema to uh, being faithful to the Bible teaching. Alright, so there it is. Remember he's not going to share his glory with another. So the fact that he shares it with Christ is, tells you everything you need to know about who Christ is. He is God. He is God in the flesh. And uh, we see it there. There is no other provision for God to so graciously bestow His righteousness, strength, justification, and glory. Secondly, the Father's good pleasure is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. He's been working on this since the Alpha moment. Colossians one 15 through 15-19. The Father's good pleasure is the exaltation of Jesus Christ, culminating in the Son delivering the kingdom to the Father. And I think we have a good tandem there in Colossians 1. So let's look at Colossians 1. We'll relate it to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll see it here as to the glory of the Father that we're looking at in Philippians 2 this morning. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bend, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So when they confess Jesus Christ is Lord, the Father is glorified. The Father's good pleasure is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Culminating in the Son delivering the kingdom to the Father. Let's look at this. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in Colossians when we wrap up Philippians. We're going to go from Philippians to Colossians. And then we'll hit Philemon before we, because uh, it's a tandem letter with, Colo- with Colossians. And then we'll go to Ephesians. That's the order that I've settled on. I think it's the order they were written in. Um. So Colossians 1, when we see, again I think it's a hymn, Uh, most uh, commentators view this as a hymn, uh, looking at the poetic nature of the language here, even uh, prior to verse 15 when you look at um, verse 13, he who, and then he who, but um, the he who in verse 13 is the father, the he who in verse 15 is the son. Uh, He who rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved sons. This is what the Father did. Transferring us from Satan's dominion to Christ's dominion in the moment of our salvation. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, to celebrate our our Savior. He who, the Son, is in the image or is I'm sorry not in but the image of the invisible god and so the father's invisible but the son became visible the son imaged him the son represented him the son according to hebrews is the the uh the emanation of his glory the uh the you know the, the light that exists and then goes forth that's the son the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation. That's a title of preeminence. I believe it's, I also take it literally. That in his humanity, nothing else was birthed before the human nature of Jesus Christ was birthed. Proverbs chapter 8. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. The firstborn, the only begotten son, it was the God-man in hypostatic union that created everything else, everything that came after, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And so we have a, a powerful text here that's really stressing the invisible side of things, stressing the invisible, stressing the heavenly, stressing the angelic, which you don't get in Genesis. You know, you read Genesis and it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then the whole rest of the chapter on it in chapter 2, all of that is earthly. Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, all of that. You've got plants, you got animals, you got birds, you got fish, you got humans. Just read through the, the day-by-day account. Do you ever see any uh, rulers and authorities, principalities and powers? No, because they're invisible. That's why you don't see them. All right? That's part of our ongoing questions in Genesis. I'm going to start an international organization, and you know, a multi-million dollar international organization called Questions in Genesis. All right. And so heaven and earth are mentioned in Genesis, but everything that follows is all visible and earthly. Heaven and earth are mentioned here in Colossians, but everything that follows is heavenly and invisible in the angelic realm. And so uh, by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, and then a listing of all invisible angelic items. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and then notice what are those final three words there? And for Him. Everything that exists is for Jesus Christ. He made it. He created it in the Father's will. Through him, meaning it wasn't his idea, it's not his plan. It's the father's plan. The father designed it. The father uh, ordered it. The father commissioned the son to to get her done. And the son did it. All right? The son did it. All things have been created through him by the design and the will of God the Father through the agency of Jesus Christ, the God-man created these things, and everything He created was for Him. For Him, for Jesus. The Father's good pleasure is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. He is before all things. That is, He takes precedence before positionally, temporally, in, all, in every way. He comes first. He is before all things. He's the number one priority of God the Father. And that's, that's a, I believe that's a literal temporal time thing. He, he preceded in time everything else. The love that the father had for the son and the, the birthing of the human nature for the son. So, so in time, in sequence, he was before everything else. But also in, in preeminence, he comes before everything else. He comes first. In the father's plan, he comes first. In the father's mind, he comes first. Okay, okay. And in him, all things, or by him, all things hold together. He created this universe and he sustains it. He upholds all things by the word of his power, we're told. Again, great, great connections between here and Hebrews. Because he's, he created the ages, in him all things hold together. You know, all Jesus has to do is give the word and everything explodes. Every molecule in this universe just explodes. Every atom, every subatomic particle Everything, all matter becomes energy at that point, and uh, and then right, no more matter. How, how fun until he creates all things new. So is before all things in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body. Now he is also. I mean, if we stop the chapter at verse seventeen, that's pretty comprehensive. I mean, that's that's everything. How do you add to everything? So he is before all things; in him, all things hold together. All things, all things. All right. So God's got a plan that encompasses all things, and all things is centered in Christ. All things are centered in Christ. Also, wait a minute. (laughs) We've already you had me at infinity, right? You had me at all things. Now we're going beyond. Okay. He is also head of the body, the church. Now this, uh, this has a connection with the all things in Ephesians chapter 1 that Colossians does not develop fully, but we'll just touch on it here. He is also, in addition to being head of all things, he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And so as the Alpha, He was the Alpha in the the Alpha moment for the first creation. He's the Alpha for the first life, for the first existence. As we've borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And, And there too, Jesus Christ is the Alpha. The firstborn from the dead. The very first resurrection on that Easter Sunday morning, we got Easter coming up, that first, that Sunday, April 5th, 33 A.D., When Jesus Christ walked out of that empty grave in resurrected, glorified body. That's the first ever. Okay? Anybody else? Old Testament, there were three in the Old Testament that were restored to physical life. Well, guess what? There was not a resurrected, glorified body. They were restored to physical life and subsequently died again later. Jesus was the first to be resurrected in a glorified body. The firstborn from the dead. So that... He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness. When we get into fullness we're talking about the bride, we're talking about the ultimate plan of God which is new heavens and new earth, the fullness to dwell in Him. In Ephesians we learn that the the body is the bride, is the fullness, the fullness of Him who fills. Jesus is the filler, you and I are the fullness. To dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. We get that. The cross is reconciling. Having made peace through the blood of His cross. And that's, of course, what brings us to the Father and not just us. Things I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. There's a heavenly facet that the cross is effective for. okay? Those rulers and those authorities have to be subjected. Those rulers and those authorities have to be reconciled and brought in. And uh, things that don't happen in the church age because they're still observing, they're still watching, they're still learning. But the new heavens and new earth when they get brought in. Anyway, there's some there's some deep things there. And then as it says, so in verses 15 through 19, we have this exaltation of the Jesus Christ, but then we have the Son delivering the kingdom to the Father. Through him to reconcile all things to himself, that is back to the Father. Back to the Father. Bringing all things back to the Father through Christ. So when every tongue confesses and every knee that bends, Jesus Christ is Lord, it's to the glory of the Father. See that? To reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, with the things on earth or things in heaven. And so ultimately the Son is going to deliver the kingdom back to the Father. Let's look at First Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. A text that uh, references the omega moment. The uh, birthing of the humanity of Jesus is the alpha moment. Jesus delivering the kingdom to the Father is the omega moment. And then everything else that transpires through time happens in between those two events. 1 Corinthians 15, we have an order of the resurrection. Verse 20 tells us, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits. Of those who are asleep, Christ is the firstfruits. Since by man came death, by man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. And so we have the, uh, the, I believe, three resurrections are mentioned here. Firstfruits, Christ. That's the first resurrection. It happened on Sunday, April 5th, 33 A.D. After that, those who are Christ at His coming. That's the rapture. We are Christ at His coming. That's the rapture. We meet Him in the air. This is the second uh, resurrection. Christ was the first resurrection. After that, those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end. Third resurrection is the end. And the resurrection at the end is a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. uh, They're separated by a thousand years, but they're still called a single resurrection the resurrection of the end. Are we clear on that? So uh, the resurrection then comes the end. When he uh, mentions tautalos, when he mentions the end, it then launches a rabbit trail. It launches a side trip. So much so that Paul doesn't even get back to resurrection until verse 29. When uh, if the dead are not raised at all. And then for the rest of the chapter, from 29 down to the end of the chapter, it's all resurrection after that. But when he mentions the end, we now have the omega moment. We have a description here of what happens at the end. Well, a lot of things happen at the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. So that's something that happens at tautelos, the end. Okay, Plus the the final resurrection happens at the end. The uh, abdication happens at the end, although I've stopped using the term abdication because He doesn't let go. When He hands the kingdom of the Father, He doesn't let go. They reign together. So if if you read it like Larkin or one of the authors that likes to use the term great abdication, uh, just know that's what they're talking about. They're talking about this 1 Corinthians 15 moment, but Jesus doesn't let go when He hands it to the Father. He hands it to the Father, the Father takes hold of it, He Jesus keeps custody of it. They rule together. It's a co-regency. The co-regency of Father and Son for all eternity future. Jesus doesn't let go of the kingdom and stop reigning because he reigns forever. Are we clear on that? All right. Jesus reigns forever. Nevertheless, he paradidomy delivers, hands over, betrays. I mean, It's the paradidomy. Jesus was paradidomied when Judas betrayed him but he was the same verb, paradidomy, just means delivered over. And the Father delivered him over. Didn't betray him, delivered him over. So now Jesus delivers over the kingdom. Paradidomy, the kingdom. To the God and Father. And here's another when. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Something else that happens at the end. There's a lot of things that happen at the end. There's a twin resurrection that are separated by a thousand years. There's the the paradidmy of the kingdom of the Father. There's abolishing rule and authority and power. All of those events happen at the end. Um, In mentioning the uh, abolishing rule, authority, and power, there's a side trip inside a side trip. Explanation, Gar, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Of course, he's going to reign longer than that, of course, but he must reign in the midst of his enemies until he's put his enemies under his feet. And then, by the way, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Uh, quotation from Psalm six, uh, from Psalm 8. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. So the person that's appointing all these things doesn't include himself when he gives all things to the Son. When Pharaoh puts all things under Joseph's command, that's all things, of course, except Pharaoh, right? When God the Father puts all things under, under Jesus' feet, well, that's all things except God the Father. Jesus remains in subjection to the Father. And so Jesus is pleased to hand the kingdom back to the Father. And this now is the final when of the text in verse 28. When all things are subjected to Him. When all things are subjected to Him then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to Him so that God may be all in all. And a very remarkable statement of all in all that we see here we see in Ephesians 1. Alright? So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the Son being glorified, the pinnacle of exaltation, so that to the glory of the Father, it can ultimately culminate when the Son delivers the kingdom to the Father. It's to the glory of the Father. So uh, we want to keep this in our thinking as well. This is what we deal with in our application. That we are glorifying Christ, and as we glorify Christ, it's ultimately to the glory of the Father. But we start with glorifying Christ. Everything we do, everything we teach, everything we say, everything we think, everything we do, we want it to be glorifying to Jesus Christ. In so doing, we're fellow workers with the Father, because that's what the Father is doing, okay? Now, when you start glorifying yourself (laughs) in a prideful carnality, guess what happens? Well, you're doing something the Father's not doing. (laughs) Uh, You're you're departing from that, that fellow work with God the Father, because God the Father is still glorifying the Son, and you decided to run off the, you know, turn to the left or to the right and blaze your own trail and decide to start magnifying yourself for a period of time. Well, the Father's not at work in that, to willing to do of His good pleasure. The Father's not a fellow worker in that. You're doing that all on your own. It's your carnality motivating that. The flesh is driving you to do that. Satan is motivating you to do that. The world is promoting that you do more of that. And so, uh, as such, um, not a good thing. Okay, The Father's going to humble you. If you exalt yourself, He's going to humble you. And He'll bring you to re- the point of repentance so that you can get back in the will of God. You can get back in the, the process of glorifying Christ. Alright. See also um, John 5. There's another concept here that I think relates well. John chapter 5 to what the Father's doing, what the Son's doing. And it reaches a point, as long as I'm in John 5, you'll notice this is a chapter that talks about the resurrection at the end and uh, resurrection of life and resurrection of judgment. Um, Anyway, prior to that, though, when you look at verse 23, goodness, where do i start where do i start where do i start um anyway he tells the man to walk he's walking he's carrying his pallet the legalists don't like it you can't walk you can't carry a pallet on the sabbath what are you doing and uh um, and then they start to persecute jesus well jesus told me to do this and um Well, he's breaking the Sabbath. He healed a man on the Sabbath. But then in verse 17, he says, my father's working till now. I myself am working. Okay. So for this reason, they want to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, yeah, this is Isaiah 45. It's unfolding. The father says every every knee will bend, every tongue will confess. The word has gone forth. So therefore, Jesus answered, was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. And so the son learns from the father. He watches the father. The father models it. The son does it. But the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. All things. All things. And this includes how to be a father. This includes the work that Jesus is going to do in his second advent, the work that he's going to do on the new earth when he takes the title Everlasting Father and he begins to fulfill that role for a thousand generations. Well, where did Jesus learn how to do that? By serving his heavenly father. By watching everything the father has been doing. See, up till now and and for now and on through the tribulation and through the millennium, God the Father has done what He's done. He's de- delegated a lot of things to the Holy Spirit. He's delegated a lot of things to the Son. But there's things He hasn't delegated the Father keeps for Himself. The Father still does those things. Like working in and through us for His good pleasure. The Father still does those things. There's a lot of things the Father still does. Well, in the, in the new earth, the Father's not going to be doing those anymore. Jesus Christ is going to take all those responsibilities. He's going to take on all those functions, all those operations. He's going to be the everlasting Father, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace. He's going to rule as Isaiah said He was going to rule. Including all of the fatherhood functions. Because God the Father has been teaching Him these things. The Father loves the Son, shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. That's why I think our culture is so broken down today. We've had all these missing fathers for two generations, three generations. And then you get these thugs, these punk kids roaming the streets. They don't have a father. They don't know how to be a father. They know how to make babies and then walk away. And, you know, we're the fathers for these guys. Well, shows him. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. There's going to be a a block of instruction The Father's going to be teaching the Son throughout the millennial kingdom. There's going to be animal ritual. There's going to be prophets. There's going to be a message looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. And we're going to marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone. He's given all judgment to the Son so that and here we see the same tandem again. All will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for this truth. I pray that you would open our eyes to understand it, to digest it, to apply it. In this day and age, throughout the church age, Father, we're focused on glorifying our Savior and in so doing, Father, by extension and then ultimately we are glorifying you. Thank you, Father, for teaching us. Make it clear that we can live it out. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.